life happens. We're human. We're going to make mistakes. I'm not a perfect parent by no means. It's okay to make mistakes. And I'm not just going to blame them for being a bad kid because making a bad choice doesn't equal being a bad kid. If you take a minute and give the child a choice, they will comply. Like you said, you can't stop your life when you have a child, especially a young child from doing the things that you love. And if you're a parent and you're not taking that time for yourself, then you're probably not the best parent you can be. Our societal expectations and the judgment that we get from other moms even, the judgment that's out there of you shouldn't be doing this or how dare you take all that time away from your kids, you must be a horrible mother. There's so many things that kids do sexually that is actually normal that I think a lot of people wouldn't think would be. Welcome back everyone to Diary of an Empath. So I'm super excited for today's episode because I have been talking a lot about parenting and being very open and vulnerable about my own past. And I've gotten a lot of messages from just stories that people have been sharing with me about their history and questions about their parenting. So I thought I, I would love to just do an episode on everything parenting. My next guest is Dr. Kim Van Dusen, also known as the parentologist. She is a licensed marriage and family therapist, and is also known on social media for her amazing advice navigating parenthood, as well as hosting her own podcast, The Parentologist Podcast. Dr. Kim, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I appreciate the intro. You make me sound so special. And <laughs> Thank you, well, you. you deserve it. We have to roll out the red carpet for you. You know, speaking of what you do, you know, you talk about everything parenting. I'm a firm believer that our childhood really shapes who we are as adults. So I would love to know a little bit about your history and, and maybe what it was like for you growing up and how it led you to where you're at now. Absolutely. You know, like you said, everyone has their own story. And I think a lot of times we only tell other people what we want them to know, or we only show the side that we want to for others to see. And, you know, I have a very complicated background, I guess, if you want to, if you want to um, categorize it like that. When you look on the surface of my childhood, I had a fabulous childhood. I had a happy childhood. I had two parents who are still married to this day who are on their 50th wedding anniversary. I had two siblings. We traveled the world. You know, we we had everything at our finger fingertips, right? Um, I had parents who paid for my undergraduate degree. You know, yada yada yada. However, when you dig a little bit deeper, especially when I started going to grad school for my MFT, that's when things started really coming to the surface because I feel like there was always some questions that were unanswered. I feel like there was always some some ghosts in the closet or things lingering in the background. And I didn't know how to put my finger on them until I started studying therapy and psychology and, and everything that was behind and underneath that childhood. So did I have a great childhood? What I say, do I say that I had a great childhood growing up? Yes. I, there's no bad memories, no severe big T traumas that I had growing up. I had a great childhood. However, when you dig deeper, there's those hidden traumas, those little T traumas that were hidden, like constant invalidation, you know, um, constant rejection, you know, getting the silent treatment from my parents when I did something wrong, getting blamed for everything that went wrong in a family vacation, those types of things. And when you get them as often as I did, you start feeling pretty insecure about yourself. You start feeling like you're not good enough. So you keep trying and trying and trying to keep making your parents proud, keep trying to impress them. So what did I do? I went and got my doctorate. I couldn't think of anything more that I could do to try and prove to my parents, I am worthy. This is who I am. Look what I accomplished. You know, and you know, are they proud of me? Do they say verbally that they're proud of me? Yes. But are those little T traumas from my childhood still there in that constant validation I got as a child, still having me try to prove myself to the world, you know, that I am important, that I am special, that I'm smart, that I'm capable you know, all those things. And do I try to really break that cycle as a mom now with my kids? And I'm very careful of how I treat them, what I say and what I do, because even though there wasn't those huge traumas that happen that I know some of my clients and friends and other family members have gone through, there's those little T traumas that people don't talk about as much. Like I said, because they're, they're hidden, they're not on the surface. They're very covert that do shape someone and do uh, cause them to have certain types of um, 
issues in relationships and in, in parenting and all the things um, that that add up over the years um, that that someone like myself went through. And so obviously you're a mom now and you mentioned how it kind of helped shape how you're now parenting. How do you think that changed things for you? You know, just kind of looking back and now you're becoming the therapist and learning more about your past and and kind of like those aha moments like, oh, I never really thought about maybe I'm doing this because of X, Y, and Z. How does that affect you now when you look at your kids and and how you want to interact with them? Because I know there's probably a lot of people listening like, oh my God, yeah, I did a lot of the same thing with my parents. Right. You know, it's it's hard. I have to be very mindful. I have to be very mindful of the words that come to my mouth. Life happens. We're human. We're going to make mistakes. I'm not a perfect parent by no means. When I make a mistake, I am the first to take a deep breath and apologize and role model that for my kids. That's something I never got growing up. I don't know if specifically my mom ever apologized for anything she said or did growing up. So, right. um, So I learned to be very defensive. So even in my own marriage, I'm defensive all the time. If I feel like he's mad at me for something, or if I did something wrong, instead of just taking that first initial deep breath and apologizing, it's easier to do as a parent than as a spouse. I will, I will share that (laughs) for me at least. But my first instinct has become defensive. My first instinct is, is to say, no, it's not my fault. It's your fault. And I'm, I'm, I'm good because I was told I was wrong and maybe bad, you know, all those times growing up. So, so the things that I experienced as a child has led me to become defensive, let's say in my marriage, I don't do it as a parent. I almost overcompensate as a parent because I don't want them to feel the same way I did growing up and the same way I still feel now to this day, you know, as a grown woman, so when I do make a mistake, if I do step stamp up my kids because I'm in a bad mood because of something that I'm going through, stress and all the things we experience you know, on a day-to-day basis, I am the first to say, I am sorry, mommy's in a bad mood, you know, and, and show them what it's like to apologize and, and be hu- human and real and vulnerable. You know, when they make a mistake, I don't blame them. I don't give them the silent treatment. I don't send them to the room and tell them they're bad for having those types of emotions. I say... It looks like you're having a bad day. There's a lot of feelings going on with you. I'm here to talk to you. You know, let me know when you're ready for a hug or let me know when you're ready to have a conversation, you know, depending on their age. As they grow up, it's a little easier to have those talking moments with them versus, you know, the more just emotional moments with them. Um, but I do a lot of validation. That's that's the one thing I do as a parent now. And that's what I do teach on my blog, on my podcast, on my social handles. I, I teach a lot of ways parents can validate their kids. It doesn't mean the behavior that they're doing is okay. I mean, kids are going to make mistakes and they're going to do things that are wrong. They're not always going to be well behaved. But just because you validate their experience doesn't mean you're you're validating the behavior that they did. So if they go and they hit their sibling, that's not excusable. There still needs to be a consequence to their action. However, you can still validate and say, I looks like you're so frustrated with your sister because she stole your toy away from you. That is really frustrating. I totally get it. I've been there before. I had a sister growing up. We used to do that to each other all the time. And then I also follow up with, you know, it's okay to have those feelings. And we also can't hit our sister. So let's go talk about it or, you know, something like that. But I take those mindful moments with them and it takes extra time, but I take those mindful moments with them to try and show them that their emotions are valid and that it's okay to make mistakes. I'm not just going to blame them for being a bad kid because making a bad choice doesn't equal being a bad kid. That's huge because a lot of us didn't grow up with parents that were willing to apologize. It was just like, well, I'm the authoritarian and you're the child. So you do what I say. You don't question me and you don't talk back. And as humans, regardless of your age, we want to feel understood. We want to feel validated. We want to feel connected. So that that right there is changing the cycle. And I, I just did an episode with uh, Yolanda Renteria on generational trauma, which was amazing. Mm-hmm. And I posted something yesterday on TikTok about my own experience with my mom and how, you know, she would always resort to like name calling or slapping like that was her thing. But that's because it was how she was raised. Like her background is all trauma, you know, and there's so many generational traumas that are in her family cultural. And, you know, there's a lot of cultural um, stigmas that are, are attached to that. And so I get why she was the way that she was. I have compassion. But when I posted this, I cannot believe how many people 
responded. I think it's like within 24 hours, I'm almost at a half a million. And literally all the comments, it's like, it almost makes me sad and validated at the same time that so many people had the same experience with either mom or dad or even both. Um, So I would love to ask you and even get your opinion on spanking, because I feel like a lot of us who went through a different generation with our parents, that seemed to be where they resorted to was hitting or spanking. And you always hear that, well, you know, and back in my day, you know, that was just, that's what we did. And you get your ass whooped, you get your ass whooped. And it's even kind of like joked about, I don't find it funny, because I know that it still affects me to this day at 37 years old. And that's not something that I feel that works. I would love to hear your um, opinion on that. And and is there data that shows that spanking works and and it does, or if it doesn't, and if not, why? Great question. And such a topic that I don't think it's talked about as much as it should. You know, I, I do think sometimes spanking can be cultural to a certain extent, you know, um, do I think spanking is like you said, a generational pattern that's getting passed on generation after generation. Do I think it happened more in our parents' generation or be before that? Absolutely. Do I think it happens as much now? No, uh, it doesn't happen as much. I think, you know, our world has evolved so much and, you know, there is more research out there. There is more, um, education out there that, that shows that this or that may not work, you know, things like, uh, conscious parenting, gentle parenting, mindful parenting, all these new, you know, new age, if you will, types of parenting and styles of parenting have become to the surface and, and have just blossomed over the last decade, let's say. So there's so much more out there now for parents than there were back then. I mean, I think social media has helped. I think, uh, you know, the internet has helped. I mean, our parents didn't have any of those types of resources. If they wanted a resource, they'd have to maybe go to a library, if that, or maybe Barnes and Noble had a parenting self-help book they could have picked up, you know, and not everyone had the luxury to do that. So, you know, parenting tips and parenting advice and the research of how our parenting affects our kids is at the forefront of our fingertips now than it ever was. So I definitely think it's changed over the years. Do I personally believe in spanking? No. Have I ever spanked my kids? No. Um, do do I know parents that do use it these days? Yes. Is it maybe as hard, the hit I'm talking about, as hard as maybe it was back, you know, when our parents used to do it to us? Maybe. I don't, I don't know. But when I talk to parents about it now, some of my clients and, and, and friends and so forth will say, well, I just tapped them lightly just so they knew, you know, that I'm still in charge. Now, do I try to give ways to my clients and and not so much friends because friends don't like my advice as much <laughs> um, when I try and give it to them. So I, I wait for them to patiently ask for me because I'm like always like, smart oh, move. let me just tell smart, you something. Smart move. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but for clients, I do. I mean, they're paying me to, to hear my advice. And there is research out there that that shows that spanking is a detriment to children. So I share them articles with them, you know, I say, just take a look at this and let me know what you think, you know, so they can make their own decision about it. But I want to educate them on what it could be doing to their child that they may not even be aware of. Because like you said, it's just something they know because that's what their parents did with them. Um, Do I share other ways that they could go about disciplining their kids without having to spank them? Absolutely. So I'll share things like having a cool down corner or a timeout area, um, you know, where they can self-regulate. You know, I I teach them that it's not necessarily a punitive timeout type place and it's not necessarily a reward. Well, if you if you do good on this, you can go play in your cool down area. No. It's just a place that a child has in their home, a safe place where they can actually just go to self-regulate. It's timed, but there's things like, you know, sensory bottles and blankets and pillows and maybe some crafting supplies like crayons and paper where they can go and just have, have a cool down time for themselves. And letting the parent also cool down, letting the parent know it's okay to have a self-care moment and they can step away and say, I'm really frustrated with my child. I'm really annoyed with my child. I'm angry at my child, but I'm going to go do this. And I give them, the parents, the tools on what they can do for themselves to cool down where they won't get so angry. It turns into any type, anything physical. So I give parents the tools for them to regulate themselves. And I give them tools to help their child regulate. So it doesn't go to that physical state. Cause there's lots of other things we can do that does, doesn't have to result in spanking. 
So you mentioned the cool down circle. So let's talk a little bit about punishment. What are maybe some core examples of alternative ways to appropriately punish a child? And I know that's very subjective, right? Because we all have to do what we feel is best as parents. Environment can play an issue. There's so much that can you know, affect how we punish our children. But maybe for someone who's listening that has said, you know, I've tried the hitting thing. It's not working. I, I want to try something different, but sometimes my five-year-old or my six-year-old, it just doesn't listen. What are some maybe effective strategies that someone can try to effectively punish, but not use physical force? Side note, did you guys know that I'm not only a therapist, but I'm also a professional tarot reader? It's not exactly me hovering over a crystal ball telling your future. It's a tool to connect with your guides and your higher self to help you in certain areas of your life. Tarot genuinely changed my life and it can potentially change yours too. Click on the link in this podcast for more info. Okay, back to the podcast. Another great question. And again, I come from a background that deals with a lot of positive reinforcement versus the punitive, um, you know, I guess, reinforcement or discipline. Do I believe that children need to be disciplined? Absolutely. Do I need, do I believe that children need to have consequences? Absolutely. Do I also believe that if, when we focus on the children's behavior, when they're doing something right, needs to be focused on more than when they're doing things wrong? Absolutely. It, it's, a, it's a game changer. It changes everything for parents when they focus on when their child is behaving versus when their child is not behaving. Do I know that there are some children who don't listen and it's so out of control sometimes it feels like a parent has just lost their their wits end because their child might be in a store and they're screaming and crying and you know they're having to hold them and they're shaking in their legs and their arms and and they feel like that might be a good time for a spanking because then they'll know okay this you know I this parent needs means business um you can't act like that in the store do I believe that parents need to be educated ahead of time and saying to their child, okay, we're going to go into a store now. We're not going to buy any cake pops at the Starbucks at Target. We're not going to buy any toys in the toy aisle. We're not going to do this. You know, this is how we're going to behave and set up all the behavior expectations ahead of time. So those types of situations won't happen. Do I also believe that when a child is being focused on the things they're doing right, so let's say a child isn't having a tantrum in the store. That's just a random example I'm using, obviously. But let's just say a child's not having a tantrum in the store. A parent can say, great job for behaving so well in the store. Give them a high five. Praise them somehow. Um, if they need something like a sticker chart or some type of reinforcement system, you know, that always usually works for most kids. Um, some parents don't like that because they feel like they're um, reinforcing sometimes negative behavior, but really it's the opposite. You're just focusing more on the positive and trying to focus on that. So I've had a lot of parents come to me and say, well, my child did this at school or my child did this. You know, what do I do? And sure, I think timeouts can be appropriate. That's a non-physical way to discipline a child by giving them a timeout. You can take something away. Uh, okay, well, because you hit your sister, I'm going to go ahead and take your iPad away for the next you know, 30 minutes or whatever it is. Um, so taking something away and doing a timeout, I think, are two of the most effective ways to discipline a child without using any sort of physical force or physical type of punishment. However, I also um, want to mention that I try to educate parents to increase something in that child's life versus taking something away. So what I usually say to a parent is try this first. Try and say, you know, give your child a choice. When they're misbehaving, give them a choice. Okay, I see you're jumping on the couch. You're not supposed to be jumping on the couch. It's not safe. The rule in our house is that we don't jump on our furniture. So here's your choice. You either can get down right now and we'll go do play outside or we'll go do X, Y, or Z activity. If you don't get down right now, then you're going to have a 10 minute timeout in your room and your iPad will be taken away for the next hour or whatever it is that you give as your consequence, which should be fair, you know, for, for what they're doing. Give the child a moment to, to decide, then ask them, okay, what's, what's your decision? What choice are you going to make? And a lot of times when you give the child, if you take a minute and give the child a choice, they will comply. They will stop the negative behavior. You might get a, a grunt or something from a child. So begrudgingly, they, they might comply, but they're still complying. So then I believe in, in praising that child. Good job for making a great choice. Good job for jumping or, you know, not jumping on the couch. Let's go play outside or let's go do, you know, X, Y, or Z, whatever activity you, you promised them you would do. Um, again, you can do sticker charts and things like that too. But 
when you're giving them that choice, you can say, if you comply, then instead of taking an iPad away, for instance, when you comply, I'll give you 15 extra minutes on your iPad this afternoon. So when we have media time later today, instead of taking the iPad away for 30 minutes, try this instead. Try saying you'll get an extra 15 minutes or an extra 30 minutes on your iPad today if you're able to get off the couch right now. It seems counterintuitive, but it works by using more positive reinforcement for a child to comply versus always having to take something away. Because eventually when you keep taking things away, kids won't care anymore. They'll be like, fine, take my iPad away. I don't care. You know, what else can you, what else can you do to me that is going to make a difference in my life? But when you increase the behavior, they don't get that defensive power struggle attitude. Instead, they'll say, oh, if I comply right now and do what my mom's asking me, she's going to give me 30 more minutes on my iPad. Heck yeah, I'm going to comply. I'm going to get off that couch right now and I'm going to get my 30 extra minutes on my iPad. So it just shifts the mindset of, 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 the, of the dynamic between parent and child. And it shifts the mindset from a negative, punitive, punishment, discipline type mentality to more of a positive reinforcement incentive that will incentivize your child to comply um, by increasing something in their life versus taking it away. I love that because what I'm hearing, it kind of shifts from authoritarian to autonomy and kind of that, you know, we're, we're in this together. We're collaborating together because I think people sometimes think that as parents, like they don't really understand what's going on. But the only thing that most children can control is their ability to make choices. Like, I'm not going to eat that. Nope, I don't want to eat that because that's really the little things that they can control is what they eat maybe what they do, maybe it's jumping on the couch, maybe it's saying no, it's those little things, because even kids, they start to find their autonomy at a very young age. So I love that because it's just the dynamic. It actually made me think about travel, because a lot of parents who travel always have very high anxiety doing so because listen, I've been there, I travel a lot, you know, you're on the flight, you're getting on a red eye. And it's like, you start hearing that one baby cry at takeoff. And you're like, Oh, my God, not not today. You know, and but I feel for some of those parents, because I've been there. So what are some maybe quick tips that you can give someone who is needs to travel with a child, or maybe who is afraid to travel with a young child? Are there some things that they can do as a parent to maybe offset some of that anxiety or keep the, the child cool and collected? And then if the child is not complying, or maybe is stressed out, what are some tips that you might have for them to uh, help not that parent not get stressed out themselves? Yeah, it is stressful, you know, and I, I, I always encourage parents to always travel with their children from infants to toddlers to preschoolers and beyond. Um, because like you said, you can't stop your life when you have a child, especially a young child, from doing the things that you love and, and you know, going on those, you know, family experiences. I do think they're worth it, even during the stressful kind of more bad times about it. So on an airplane specifically, or even a road trip, I say that the more the parent is prepared in advance, the better the trip is going to be. And also to lower your expectations. I know that's easier said than done, but when you when you lower your expectations, because I think a lot of times we, when we travel, we think of maybe what it's like when we traveled before kids or what it could be. You know, if our children children were the most well-behaved kids in the world, this is what our vacation would look like. Because we see those snippets on Instagram and TikTok and Pinterest and all the perfect par birthday parties and all the perfect travel vacations and all the things, you know, we set our expectations pretty high because we want everyone to think that we're having this wonderful family vacation. When in actuality, by doing that, you're almost setting yourself up for failure. So really set your expectations. Again, you don't have to make it low. That was probably pretty extreme, but set your expectations to not make them too high. Really just be realistic with your expectations is what I'm saying, first and foremost. Second, be prepared. So really have all the snacks in the world for your kids for that long road trip or that airplane flight. So especially, you know, what I like to do with my kids, I'll put it there, is get things for them that they don't normally get on a regular basis. So there's a lot of things that I don't buy on a regular basis. One of them being goldfish crackers. <laughs> I know it's a staple in <laughs> a lot of people's homes. A lot of, I mean, kids love them. They are addicting. There's controversy on how healthy they actually are for kids, but I don't regularly give them to my kids. However, when we travel, I get a, a, you know, a box of goldfish crackers and it's a special travel treat. So they know that they know there's certain things, certain snacks that I will pack on a road trip or on an airplane that they only get during those times. They also know that I will pack certain new types of items 
for them for a flight or for a long drive um, that I get like at the dollar store or, or, or a dollar store or maybe the Target do- dollar area, inexpensive type, you know, Mad Libs or, you know, all those little things um, that we had that, ki- that kids love, little um, mazes they can do or, you know, just all the little things, not too expensive that they own, that they get special for that trip. And they don't get it for the whole trip. They only get it for the flight or for the actual when they're actually in the car. So again, some of those things take time to plan out and, and, you know, go to the store and get the things. And again, not everyone has the luxury to, to go and spend extra money when you're already spending a lot of money on a trip to begin with. But there's things you can buy or even make maybe different crafts your kids can do that you can prep ahead of time and bring all the crafting materials, you know, so they can do those things again in the car or in the hotel or things like that. You know, speaking of iPads, honestly, iPads have saved my life on in more more ways than one when it comes to mm-hmm. a long trip. So Same. I would say come prepared with that. You know, <laughs> make sure you don't leave the charger at home. Like come prepared. Again, iPads are kind of a luxury in our home too. Um, I don't use them all the time, but on things like a trip or a long flight, I will use them and I do find value in them. Um, you know, do I let my kids have free range on what they watch the whole time? No, we download very specific shows educational shows, fun shows that they like that I know that will keep their attention. So again, though, I think those things combined, you know, setting your expectations to be, be realistic for what the vacation is going to be like, knowing there's going to be some, some bad moments, knowing that there's going to be stress, you know, everyone's, you know, going to be maybe on, on high alert, including the kids. Um, and then also being prepared with, with really special things you can make the trip, you know, mm-hmm. unique, um, whether it's a special snack, special, you know, crafting, special um, toys that you can bring specifically for the trip, I think usually helps make things a little bit smoother. Those are great tips. And I think too, that if if it doesn't go all right, and your kid starts crying or has a meltdown, it's okay. I mean, you're never going to see these people again. It's flights, it happens, like, don't worry about it. I think I feel so bad for moms sometimes. And I'm not going to say just moms, dads too, parents in general, because but I say moms because I feel like sometimes people have this stigma of of women who have children who are acting out and they're like, oh, that's a bad mom. Like she should be able to control their kids. And it's like, well, you don't know what's going on. You don't know if this kid has ADHD. You don't know if there's autism. You don't know if they've had a bad day. You don't know if they've been up all night. And there's just such this like stigma. And, you know, even me as a mom, I've been there where my kid has had a meltdown on a flight and I'm like, oh my God, I'm that person right now, but I'm really a good mom. And I was so embarrassed, but I think back at it, I'm like, no, why, why was I embarrassed? Like, that's just part of being a mom and traveling and being stressed out. And sometimes kids don't have any other way to express themselves, but to cry. So, you know, give yourself that grace. So thank you so much for those tips. Um, Speaking of kids with disabilities, what advice do you give to parents who are dealing with a kid that might have like ADHD or be on the spectrum in some way? Because I know that on some level, there's got to be a difference with how you parent or maybe, you know, I can't even really speak for that because I don't have a child who has any type of disability, but I know that maybe someone who's listening does. Is there a different advice that you give to people that have uh, kids with disabilities rather than, you know, a parent that doesn't? Absolutely. I think most of my experience with children, at least in the last, let's say five years plus, has been with children on the spectrum. I've had a lot of um, children somewhere on the autism spectrum. Um, most of my clients come to me that already have a diagnosis of ADHD and it's you know learning how to manage their behaviors, whether it's at home or in the classroom or whatnot. So I work a lot with special needs children. I work a lot with kids with disabilities and with parents too, and helping them and giving them the tools that they need. And you in most cases, some things do work for most most kids, despite their diagnosis, despite their disability, etc. Um, but do I use the same type of parenting techniques I would use on a typical child versus a non you know neurotypical child? No, um, there are going to be some differences. So, you know, a lot of those parenting self help books that I was referring to earlier, um, you know, I, I hope no one thinks I'm, I'm joking about them because I'm trying to write, write, write my own right now. <laughs> trying to write my own parenting advice book right now. So hopefully that'll come out in the future at some point. But um, do I think there's a lot of value in those? Yes. But for kids with disabilities or special needs, do I think most of the advice in those books will help them? Probably not. ADHD is a little bit different than ASD. With ADHD children, um, you know, a lot of, like I said, a lot of that positive reinforcement that I was talking about earlier, um, sticker charts, you know, noticing when they're actually behaving versus when they're not behaving. 
you know, those things work really well with, with children with ADHD, but talking about giving ourselves grace, I think parents with special needs, children, parents with kids with disabilities have a really tough job. And I just want to recognize that. And, you know, I think being more patient with those children, being more patient for the family dynamic, you know, whether they're siblings, you know, the parents, whoever's involved, um, it takes a lot of patience and, and there's, there's a lot more self-care, I think, that needs to be involved with a parent, um, with a child that has a diagnosis like that, because they have a really tough job and things aren't easy for them all the time. You know, um, things are probably more difficult than a parent with a child with typical behaviors. So, so you know, without going to too much detail in, in specifics about what I would say for them in how to parent their kids, um, I do think there are certain things that may work that I've already discussed. But do I also think that there's things that parents need to do in addition to that? Absolutely. And, you know, that's kind of like a a client by client basis or a child by child basis, because even in what I teach, not everything's going to work for every child. You know, that's why I always like to give parents a lot of tools to have in their back pocket, because this A may work for, and and not even at separate times, you know, parenting tip A may work for for the child the first time or the second time, but then the third time you try it, it doesn't work anymore. Um, or it may work for one sibling and not the other sibling or, or, you know, or whatever the case is. So I always like to give parents as many tools as possible so they can, you know, if, if one thing doesn't work, they can pull something out of their back pocket and have the next thing work. Because even with the same child, you can't use the same, you know, advice over and over and over again for the most part, because they're going to catch on and think, oh, well, my mom's just trying to get me to do this. You know, I've, I've heard this from her before, you know, whatever the case is. So, so I give those parents with children with disabilities, et cetera, a lot more of those tools because hands down things won't work probably more than once, um, you know, on a regular basis. So they have to have a lot more tools than I think a typical parent. What do you say to parents who are experiencing guilt for taking that time off or for trying to do self-care? Because I feel like a lot of people want to do things on their own, but they feel guilty for doing anything for themselves. What's your advice to them? Oh, mom guilt will get you. Mm-hmm. It gets you real good. I say still do it. I still say make time for it because if you're a parent and you're not taking that time for yourself, then you're probably not the best parent you can be because you're going to get burnout. You're going to get resentful. You're going to uh, almost feel guilty that you're not taking the time off. That happens too. So does it have to be an extreme type self-care, you know, event where you spend the whole day at the spa or, you know, you go on a huge shopping spree or you spend the weekend with, with your girlfriends, you know, for two or three nights at a time. Does it have to be like that? No. Can it be like that? Absolutely. And is it healthy to do that? Absolutely. And I think parents, Mm -hmm. especially moms need to know that, that it's, it's, almost better that you take that time off to be the best mom you can be. And it's okay to take that time off. And I think a lot of parents uh, are so skeptical about doing it, but then once they're there and they can finally breathe and feel like, oh, I feel like myself again. I think a lot of times when we become, especially when we become moms, I'll speak for myself. We kind of lose a little bit of ourselves once we become a mom, because then we just identify as a mom. Everything revolves around, you know, your kids uh, most, most of the time. And you kind of forget who you are. You kind of forget what music bands you were into and what concerts you used to go to when, you know, before kids or even the types of restaurants you used to go to, you know, getting dressed up to go out somewhere, whether it's with friends or with a spouse or a partner, whoever, you, you kind of forget what that's like and to live that life. And so reminding ourselves that not only is that possible, but it's encouraged, I think is a shift our society should really take advantage of because I think our societal expectations and the judgment that we get from other moms, even the judgment that's out there of you shouldn't be doing this or how dare you take all that time away from your kids. You must be a horrible mother. You know, we've, we've seen all that on social media and in other places, mm-hmm. but really and truly mom should be lifting each other up. Mom should say, Hey, let's all go out together and go out to dinner and have a night off. Like how great would that mm-hmm. be if we had that encouragement from other moms, because we do need that time for ourselves. We do need that time away, whether it's with friends or by ourselves or whatever, 
And those things can be done even just throughout our day. You know, it doesn't have to be, like I said, extreme where we're going out and doing all those things. We can just take a few things. I posted something on Twitter earlier today saying something like, you know, self-care is when a mom gets to take a hot shower with the door locked and she has enough time in the shower <laughs> to, to shave her legs, right? It sounds so simple, but it's, it's so true. It's so true. You know, having just those little moments throughout our day can really change the trajectory of how we feel about our day and how we feel about our our kids and you know all the things and give us that extra boost of energy that we wouldn't have if we didn't get it otherwise. So I say take it. I say take a momcation, even if it's just to the shower to take a long hot shower and shave your legs. Take a momcation, go out to dinner, take that night away, do what you need to do, um, especially if, if your kids are with a trusted person, you know, to stay with. I say take as much advantage as you can because we need that fuel to continue being really good parents. I call it mom shame, like moms shaming other moms. And, you know, it's really sad that that happens. And I agree with you. Women need to be supporting other women, not shaming them because we all have different journeys. And being a mom is is not easy at all. It changes our body. It changes our, our sleep, you know, and recharging is so necessary. I kind of want to jump ahead and talk a little bit about teens because the teenage years is a whole other beast. I have a 14 year old and um, how I miss how she was little. It's bittersweet, but you know, it's so different now that she's a teenager. I know there's a lot of people and this is a little controversial because I think sex is something in my opinion, that's extremely important to talk about with your kids. I grew up not having that conversation with my mom. I learned about sex through porn at a very, very young age, you know, back when I think I was like six or seven, but I didn't, we didn't have the internet back then. We had VHS and I learned it from my dad's house, putting in a tape that I thought was like a Disney movie. And I was introduced to sex at a very young age and became sexually active at a very young age. And those conversations were between me and my friends. That's how I learned about these things. Now with my daughter, I had the conversation, I think starting when she was like 11, we've even had the conversation about masturbation. And I know some people are like, oh my God, it's not kid appropriate. But in my opinion, these kids talk, there's internet, porn is everywhere. I mean, you can go on YouTube and there is very sexually explicit content everywhere, even if you have parental locks on your stuff. So I would love to get your advice and opinion on when is a good time to talk about sex? And if so, how do you initiate that conversation? Such a controversial and hard topic, I know, for a lot of parents to be able to talk about that, especially, like you said, if they didn't have those conversations when they were growing up, it's it's awkward, it may be uncomfortable, but, they, but they're necessary and, and they need to be done. And they need to be done earlier than when, when I was growing up and you were growing up. Things are happening at a much faster pace and a much younger age these days. You know, I remember going to like a sex ed class in the fifth grade and kind of learning about, you know, all the things um, from you know, period to sex to everything else. And that's the first exposure I remember. I don't remember really having a conversation with my parents, maybe not until high school. Uh, I remember making out with a boy in high school and my mom telling me, oh, that's normal, you know, because he kept trying to like feel me and do all the things. And I was just kind of, it was my first kind of experience with that. And it felt really awkward and almost shaming. Like, well, why was he touching me? And I was very confused. And, you know, my mom saying, oh, that's normal. I remember that conversation with her, but that wasn't until I was about 16 or 17 years old. And like you said, kids talk. I have a nine-year-old daughter who, for even since when she was about seven or eight, would come home from school and say, so-and-so thought they started puberty today. So-and-so, you know, having to wear deodorant or having hair grow under her arms. And, you know, she's learning that at first, second, third grade. And I, I'm thinking to myself, wow, I'm late in the game. I should have had conversations with her much earlier than I, than I have because she's learning things at school from her peers, like you said. Um, at least in our school district, every child has an iPad. And even though there's some controls on there that either the school or we have set, there's still they can still look up almost anything on Google and most things will still pop up. For example, yep. um, she was talking about with her friends the other day, not the other day, well, it seemed like the other day, but it was probably about a year and a half ago um, when they were second graders and they had looked up the word butts on on Google, on their school iPads of all things, you know, it wasn't blocked. There was images right. that came up like similar to what you had, you know, probably looked at when you were six or seven years old, there was images that came up. I was mortified and shocked yeah. that honestly, so innocent, the, the word, but Googling, but it's so innocent. <laughs> they thought it was hilarious. They just wanted to see a picture of a, butt. I don't even think they even were thinking it was going to be a naked, butt. I think they just thought mm. it was funny to type in the word, butt and see, and see what happens. But they saw some things that they weren't expecting. 
Another example of that is, uh, you know, again, speaking of Disney and, you know, all the, you know, fantasy and, you know, falling in love and all the things that we see on these movies at a very young age. Um, I think one of my daughter's friends looked up uh, True Love's First Kiss, which you hear that a lot in, you know, Frozen and Snow White and Cinderella and all Sleeping Beauty and all the all the movies where the prince comes and kisses the pr princess and then everything, you know, is right again. So they typed in love's first kiss or something and that's some more images, maybe inappropriate oh for those age come up because when you type in, you know, first kiss, all sorts of things can come up on the internet. It's not a Disney character kissing their prince. It's, it's mm -hmm. other things that I know you and I can only imagine. Right. So, you know, like you said, I think things need to start early and I know parents are apprehensive to do that. I think parents are very terrified to have that conversation early. But I've worked with a lot of parents that have toddlers, let's say, who masturbate or toddlers who, um, you know, hump their, their teddy bears in their room. And they come to me mortified saying, is, is my child normal? Is that normal for them to be having that type of sexual activity at three and four years old? And my answer is yes, it mm -hmm. is. They have these urges. They have these hormones. They have these feelings. And a lot of those things are normal. It's it's normal. I actually did a podcast on this a while back and some social um, posts about it. And I haven't written a blog about it yet, but I should um, because there's so many things that kids do sexually that is actually normal that I think a lot of people wouldn't think would be. For example, showing their peers their, their private parts at a young age, maybe kindergarten, first, second, third grade, is actually pretty normal, pretty typical or, you know, um, for kids to do that. It wouldn't be abnormal for them initially not to do it. Some kids do, some kids don't. But, you know, um, talking about puberty, talking about sex at young ages. And here's my thing. I want to get my kid before the, her peers get get them, Yes. Right. I want to be the one to tell her about puberty. I want to be the one to tell her about sex. I want to be the one to tell her about all those things. I don't want her to hear it on the playground at school. I want to be the one, you know, and I think parents are skeptical of that because they think, well, I don't want to ruin my child's innocence. That's the biggest thing. I don't want to ruin my child. And I'm the same way. I'm thinking, gosh, when should I have some of these conversations with her? Because I don't want her to be tampered by all the things that happen when I feel like she should know about when she's older. However, I don't want her to hear it from her peers because I know it's not going to be accurate. It's not going to be accurate from an eight, from another eight-year-old, most likely. So I want to be the one to get to her first so she can really hear and, and keep those lines of communication open. So you have a 14-year-old. The biggest advice I always give to teen parents, and you can probably attest to this even better because you have one. I have a pre-tween right now, which I feel like she's <laughs> on the birth of Already a teenager. <laughs> already. Um, but the biggest thing, and I think you can attest to this too, is keeping those lines of communication open. The earlier that we can start having conversations with our children about things like sex, alcohol, porn, masturbation, all, all the icky topics that people don't usually like to talk about, the sooner we can have those conversations with them and the open lines of communications that are open for those types of communication and conversations is going to help when your child does get older because they're going to know that it's safe to talk to my mom about sex. It's safe to talk to my mom about masturbation. It's safe to talk to my mom about alcohol because she's not going to get mad at me. She's not going to, you know, reprimand me for it. She's going to talk to me about it because those lines of communication are open and I can have those conversations with her and feel safe about it. So I think that's the thing is letting them know, okay, if they sit, come home and say, oh, so-and-so showed me her private parts today in the school bathroom, you can say, okay, let's talk about it. What was that like for you? You know, or when puberty comes up as a topic, well, what did your friends already tell you? What do you already know about it? And then let's, let's go from there, you know, type things. So um, it's all about keeping those lines of communication open. It's all about not shaming them for having those sexual thoughts. It's not sh about shaming them for having those sexual desires or behaviors. It's about teaching them, you know, what it is and teaching right from wrong too. And okay, maybe you should wait until you're this age before you do this or, you know, all those things you can still preventatively um, help them, you know, learn making good choices when it comes to alcohol and, and sexual use, right? But but making sure that you're not shaming them for it so they feel safe enough to come to you to talk to you about it, I think will help prevent those types of things from getting out of control. And I think that's what parents are worried about, that, you know, their child's going to get pregnant at 16 or their child's going to um, get drunk at a party and, you know, maybe drive some kids home and get in a car accident, maybe even kill someone. Those are the extreme things that's not going to happen to every child who drinks underage or who has sex underage. But 
if we can educate them at an early age and tell them the good and the bad and the ugly along the way, then they're going to be able to make those good decisions because you've had those conversations about them and you were honest with them about it. 100% agree. I love how you talked about it's normal for kids to even show themselves their private parts. I did that at a young age and I have those memories and I felt shame Mm -hmm. for the longest time. It wasn't until I became a therapist myself and started learning about this. I think I took like a child adolescent psychology class when I was um, in grad school and I, I felt this sense of relief, like, oh my God, there's not something wrong with me. I felt like this was like this deep, dark secret that like, what was wrong with me at six, seven years old that I was doing this? And why do I have this memory of like me and the neighbor showing each other, not doing anything, but just like show me yours and I'll show you mine. Right. But it was like it, really shameful. And now that I look, now that I learned about it, I was like, oh my gosh, I wish people would know that these types of behaviors in kids are quite normal. I remember her and I'm going to be very open. Like I remember being a kid and having an orgasm at, in gym, like climbing up the rope. And I remember feeling like, oh, what's this tingle I feel, you know, but I didn't know what it was. I just right. knew that it felt good. Right. So these things are very normal. It's our body. It's very normal for our body to have these reactions. Um, speaking of social media, that's a big thing now. You know, we're in the social media age. Uh, we have TikTok. You know, we're both content creators. We're on Instagram. We're on TikTok. So, you know, we get it. I was very hesitant to let my daughter have a TikTok, but she made a whole PowerPoint presentation of why she should have one. So I ended up allowing her to have one, but I hesitated for a long time. When is a good age to let a kid have social media? It's a great question. I, I love your your daughter's tenacity and creativity. <laughs> She's very, for you. That was fabulous. Um, very, very you know, good. <laughs> it does vary from child to child. I really do think it's the parent's discretion based on their child's maturity, you know, based on all, you know, their developmental level, their cognitive level, you know, there's lots of different factors. I think that, you know, I don't think there's a blanket answer necessarily, but I think when your child shows you that they're responsible, when they show you that they can make good choices, uh, you know, and when they're, when they're mature about it, I think is a good time. So I get asked a lot, even when can a child have their first phone or when should a child have their first phone? I've talked a lot about that. And, you know, for me, for us, it's more about when, the child will actually need it. You know, I still pick my child up from school or both my kids up from school. Um, I take them to all of their after school activities. I'm always there. Sometimes they'll get dropped off for a play date these days if I know the person really well. But a lot of times I'm there too because I'm friends with the other mom and it's kind of time for us to kind of chat and talk too. But when she's old enough where she is going to start going places on her own, even if she's not driving yet, but I drop her off and she's there for you know multiple hours or whatever the case is, I want her to have a way to communicate with me. I don't want her to feel like she's stranded or if she needs something, she can have direct contact with me without having to ask you know someone at the front desk if she's at a class or something. I want her to have that direct access to me. So when that time comes, whether that's 9, 10, 11 years old, she's going to get that phone because I want her to be able to communicate with me and communicate with me directly. Even if she's at a play date at a friend's house. Maybe she feels uncomfortable. Her friend's being mean to her and she wants to come home. I don't want her to feel awkward of asking that parent, can I please call my mom and have her pick me up early? She might feel embarrassed to do that. But if she can send me a quick text, um, if it's not a phone, if it's one of those new watches they have where kids can just text, you know, come get me or something, just do that. You know, whatever a parent feels comfortable with. And with social media, that's like the next step. Once they have their phone and they can show you that they're responsible with it, that they're not texting their friends in the middle of the night, that they're not, you know, emailing their friends in the middle of the night, whatever the case is, when they just have that basic phone without social media apps, when they can show you that they're responsible and mature with that, then I think they'd be ready for social media. And do I also think that sometimes the parents should have access to their passwords to a certain um, age? Yes. You know, I think under, let's say, oh, I haven't gotten there yet. So I don't know. What <laughs> I still have say, it. But I still I have it. Maybe 14, maybe 16. I don't know. But I do think that the parents should have access to be able to access that social media when they want to, or when they feel like they need to, um, you know, not to impede on that child's um, privacy, but just more of a safety measure just to check in once in a while, you know, until they get to a certain age. I do think that's appropriate too, or having those parental settings or controls and things like that until they get to a certain age, you know, maybe 15, 16, whatever the case is where they feel like they're old enough and mature enough to handle those things on their own. Cause there is cyberbullying. There is all sorts of things that go on that isn't necessarily um, that your child's doing. It's not like your child's posting pornography, but 
they may, their peers might be bullying them or their peers might be posting things that aren't appropriate and thinking, oh, let's not be friends with that person online or being able to use those moments as teaching moments and sharing with them. Yeah, that's not the kind of people we want to be friends with online if they're posting that kind of stuff. Or if there is a cyberbullying situation, you can jump in and, and support them and help them. It's not just to make sure that you're trying to you know, babysit them, making sure they're making all the right decisions. It's teaching moments to teach them you know, who's a good friend and, um, you know, what content is actually appropriate, you know, at that age. So that's great advice. I think that it, it, it really is subjective depending on the kid. And I, I comment on my daughter's TikToks all the time because I want people to know this is her mom and I am watching. <laughs> but I, I love that advice. I, I think you just have to do its best. And in, in, in you as a parent, I think you'll know when it's time, but it's it's a difficult decision. I trust me, I know. But when I saw that PowerPoint presentation, I'm like, okay, <laughs> all right. Yeah, I'll let you have it. Um, what advice would you give to your younger self looking back? Use more moisturizer is always <laughs> my first thing. <laughs> um, you know, I think, do I have good genes? And do I feel like I look younger than I am, you know, or maybe just feel younger than I am? Yes. But I definitely wish I, I used, you know, more sunscreen, more moisturizer, <laughs> things like that. Um, but on a serious note, I think, you know, to my younger self, I think it would be to not be so impulsive with my decisions. I think it would be to, um, you know, just take more time to make decisions that I think were better for me in the long run. Um, you know, there's different things that I look back over the years um, and, and have regrets over. And I don't want any, I wouldn't wish that upon anyone to have that type of life where they feel like, well, I should have done that. Or I, you know, I, I'm, I'm mad at myself because I didn't do that. You know, whether it's a career aspiration, whether it's a relationship, whatever it is, something that you didn't do for yourself, for instance, going abroad in college. I had lots of friends that went abroad in college, but I was terrified to leave the country at that age. I just didn't have the maturity to do it back then. And that seems like a simple, silly regret, but I still think about it at this age thinking, gosh, I wish I would have traveled the world more, you know, before kids, before getting married, you know, all those things just for me, just to, you know, live in London for six months. What would it have been like? You know, I think about things like that. Again, that sounds, you know, something, but it's, it stays with me even all these years later of thinking, gosh, I wish I would have done more things like that. So I think... Like I said, going back to your question, you know, advice to my younger self is just not being so scared all the time, not being so fearful about what other people thought or, you know, just being more secure in my own skin, which is a lot easier said than done. But just being able to make those more mindful decisions about my life, uh, I think I'd be uh, probably in a different place now than I would have been you know, back then. Dr. Kim, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your knowledge and your wisdom and all the great advice. I know that there's going to be so many people that are going to get so much out of it. And I'm going to link your website and your podcast and everything that you're doing for everyone to find you because I know you're dropping some amazing things and a future book. I look forward to reading it. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. I loved being here.